This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Not Even Mad, a show where we're at times intemperate, conspicuously quizzical, penetratingly pugnacious, but we're not even mad. Today, as we discuss the Elon Musk Twitter takeover, fear of crime, and as we introduce a segment called Cancel Court, we vow to relish the discourse because we are not even mad. Who are we specifically? Jamie Kerchick is a columnist for Tablet Magazine and author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Jamie, I give you the choice. Please name your favorite Halloween candy or saint in honor of All Saints Day. I'm going to have to go with chocolate with the little razor blades in them. (laughs) (laughs) Virginia Heffernan writes for Wired and her own substack called Magic and Law. Same question. Saint or candy? Uh, all right, it's Saint, and it is Saint Monica of all names, the patron saint of adultery. I don't know if she supports the adulteress or the poor cheated on wife, but either way, I like her. And I am Mike Pesca, host of The Gist. I go with Ruth, baby, and Saint. So if they say it bleeds, it leads. They do say that, Virginia. Lead us off with things sanguinary. Releasing dangerous murderers early. That's crazy. But that's far left John Fetterman. John Fetterman has the courage to do what's right. Dr. Oz doesn't know a thing about crime. He only knows how to help himself. So I don't know what Dr. Oz knows, but my question is, do we know a thing about crime? It seems that all these candidates in the midterms are running on it, running on crime. And polls show that Americans are indeed worried about crime. 80% of people in a Gallup poll say they worry about crime. And again, it's always general. Maybe it includes wire fraud. I don't know. But is that fear justified or is it an artifact of alarmist media? As Bloomberg recently put it, incidents of violent crime remain at historic lows in New York City, but people's views and guns on crime are often more influenced by what they see and hear rather than hard numbers. So even as hard numbers on crime can be sliced and diced like the Bible to make almost any point, let's talk about a few numbers. Robberies in major cities are up almost 12%. Aggravated assaults are up slightly. Homicides, by contrast, are down slightly. And rapes fell by 5%. So just by the numbers, if Americans were utterly rational and all our fears were justified, fear of rape and murder would be down and fear of being robbed would be up. Now, is this justified, the fear of being robbed? Well, the majority of robberies are committed with handguns, so it's no surprise that places like Texas, Arizona, and Tennessee have some of the highest robbery rates. Pennsylvania is much further down the list. And of course, rates of violent crime in Oklahoma and many red states are higher than in New York and California. But is the generalized fear of crime? Well, we know what the hot 
anecdotes, the camera-ready anecdotes are that show up in ads like Oz's and and Fetterman's. Um, An innocent person, usually white, is killed by a stranger who's often black or Latino. Now, that fear is not justified. Of all murders, only around 18% are committed by a stranger. And even of those, we're talking sometimes about mutual combatants. So if by crime, we mean murders or robbery by strangers in blue states, there is really very little to fear. So unless it's gun violence or mass murders in red states like Texas, cars killing pedestrians in New York, or domestic violence, I just don't think generalized fear of crime is justified. So, Mike, I nervously turn this over to you because you are the king of statistics and numbers, and you will no doubt blow our mind with some number that says all of us are about to be mugged right now. No, no, Virginia. It's it's not some number. It's the numbers. I don't know what Bloomberg is talking about, and I don't know what you're talking about. Last year in New York City, there were, that's what Bloomberg was talking about, there were 488 murders. In 2017 and in 2018, there were under 300 murders in New York. So once you have an extra 200 bodies that didn't need to be lying, bleeding on the ground, you have a problem. It's not just New York. Pre-pandemic, there were 16,000 or so murders in the United States, and then it exploded. Over 21,000 people dead. So we're talking about 5,000 bodies. These are statistics only because there's so many, I can't talk about them all individually. But it's an inhumane read on this to think of it as statistics or anything other than societal trends and uh, pandemic explosions of anger, and also failure to police as we once did. But there are so many more dead people and so many more dead people than there have to be. Murder had a massive jump right after the pandemic or right after lockdowns during the pandemic. It was at a 25-year high. It went up by 30%. Sorry, it's a statistic. Think of it as 5,000 extra people. And the fact that in one statistic you cite, which is from an incomplete source that just monitors cities, but I'll even take it on faith that murder might be down 2% this year. It doesn't matter because it was up 30% two years ago and it was up 4 or 5% a year ago. Murder, which is the most horrific of crimes, is rampant. Sure, not as bad as 1993, not as bad as other times, but bad. So many more bodies than there have to be. The not fear as bad is as justified. before the pandemic, as you just said. All of these what, numbers are always comparing. What do you mean no, not as bad as before the pandemic? You, there are 5,000 more dead people than there have to be as compared to pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, but it, I just mean that it's jumped during the pandemic. So why weren't we just afraid during in 2020, just as afraid we as we are now? We were. We were. And what we're seeing now, what, what we're seeing now is that I think a lot of people in the Democratic Party and the media and among liberals don't want people to remember what they were saying in the summer of 2020, which was defund the police. And that swept our institutions, our uh, higher education, um, most of the mainstream media, the squad, and ma- many, by the way, many Democratic politicians were supporting this rhetoric. Um, and now we're reaping the whirlwind and they're trying, and it's this sort of false amnesia. They're trying to get people to forget about all this. And so they're doing really the worst thing that a politician can do, at least from a political standpoint, which is telling the voters that they're imagining things and telling voters that what they claim to care about really isn't a problem. Well, you know what? 
voters are going to vote and the Democrats are going to get wiped out next week. And I think that this fear of crime, whether you think it's legitimate or exaggerated, that's going to be one of the leading reasons. Well, I'm glad to see rape is down because fear of rape is something that uh, is, you know, something that is very present among the people I know and um, but is doesn't lump in with fear of crime. Many of these times when homicide alone is broken out, neither does intimate partner violence, which accounts for tons of assaults. So we're not talking about problems with policing unless we think we need more social workers among the police who are willing to investigate domestic crimes. This idea that strangers are walking around at new heights, and by the way, it is down since the height in 2020. Who said strangers? Who said strangers? I mean, the crime and most of the crime, as as you point out, by the way, most of the crime, yes, is between people who know each other. And by the way, it's, it's, it's ethnic minority communities. It's black and brown communities who are disproportionately affected by, by crime. Um, and they're not clam. They ne- they were never clamoring for, for for defunding the police. It was mostly upper middle right. class white. Jamie, liberals I know you were, love this defund the police thing. thing. There were two things that went on in 2020. Some lunatics on one side said defund the police. Some lunatics on the other side said roll in tanks on cities like New York, which was labeled an anarchist jurisdiction by Donald Trump and Bill Barr. So the 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 martial law types were in power. And we're enacting the the National Guard was called out in 23 cities. And then there were some fringy voices saying defund the police. I can confidently say I never wrote a column saying defund the police. I never published a column saying defund the police. And the same is true of any sane person. So because a smattering of people argued to defund the police, I don't think they need any more voice given to them. I mean, you can trash them all you want, but I, I, I don't, I'm not going to pick on the martial law people right now. That was a crazy summer and it brought out some extremes in both parties, but it wasn't you the can't bring me down the left. Them. I mean, I, it was not, it was the leading editorial pages, leading commentators on cable news or plenty of democratic politicians. Look what just happened in San Francisco where they ousted the um, district attorney, Chesa Boudin, over crime. Um, look at what's happening in Oregon right now, where they might elect a Republican governor in Oregon, largely due to crime. Um, and it's not, I mean, there's, there's also this issue that right. might not even be, that you can't really, uh, you can't find statistics for. But there is a general sense that our cities mm-hmm. have become uh, uh, less less ordered, that there's, that there's more chaos on our cities, that there's more homelessness, that there are more, um, uh, they're, they're just more fearful places to live. And I can say that about my neighborhood in an upscale neighborhood of Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and almost all my friends who live in major American cities report the same thing. It's not necessarily that they've been victimized by crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that the, 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 the cities have fallen into, into disrepair. Jamie, you said that murder victims are disproportionately black. And normally we say things like that about societal trends which fall Uh, more heavily on the African-American community. You don't have to go that far to say disproportionately. In America today, most murder victims are black, and that is a trend, a post-pandemic development. Most, in a country where 14% of Americans are black, most murder victims are black, and it goes without saying, since most murder victims and murderers come from the same ethnicity, that most murderers are Uh, Yes, most killers are also African-American, but this is a human rights tragedy, especially for communities that you would think that liberals and progressives care the most about. 
It is nothing to do with how I feel or the general sense of disorderliness, which, by the way, may be warranted, and I'm going to say is warranted. I'm just going by empiricism. When crime was exceedingly low in New York, and when there was a miracle of policing, and when New York had a murder rate of 3.0 per 100,000 people, when the national rate was 5, so you were so much safer in New York City than you were if you were plunked down someplace random in the United States. I said it over and over again. Now, it is true. Surveys still said that people were worried about crime in their community as it was going down. But now it is going up. And once you have proven that if you're a city like Chicago, which is, has always been a very violent city, but in 2020, if you had under 500 murders, and last year, if you had almost 800 murders, and you have proven that you could run a city with fewer than 500 people being murdered, which is no great accomplishment, but it is compared to what's going on now. You owe it to the citizenry to do that. The same with Philadelphia, which had under 300 murders from 2013 to 2016. And last year had 561 murders. There is so much more violent crime going on now than there was four, five, or six years ago. And the reason that there's alarmism is because the development, empirically speaking, is alarming. And I do think that policing techniques play a big part in why that's happened. I'm just trying to do the good couples therapy thing and say, I hear you, Mike. I hear, I hear, I hear your anguish. You're telling me that there is there are more murders than there were pre-pandemic, and that's true. The many more, many more, more bodies. Um, yeah. But um, but to say that I think the fear is uh, not justified is not to say that those things aren't happening. We'll never obviously get to murder zero. And we, but the fear is at an all time high. And when I have canvassed people about their fears, I asked a counterterrorism cop yesterday. I asked a, uh, a two uh, fairly right wing lawyers who are members of Chabad. And I asked a, uh, a Christian Republican who is a chip designer. And they described the, the the Chabad guys weren't afraid at all. They've lived in Crown Heights for a long time. And they both of them said things were so much worse when they were kids. You're always comparing, right? You're always comparing. You're always saying it's safe in this neighborhood, not safe in that neighborhood. If you stay out, don't stay out after after dark, it's fine. But I would be afraid after dark. So anyway, making the comparison, it was incredibly dangerous then. Uh, it was incredibly dangerous when I was a kid, and it's fine now. Is the general sentiment in New York, rightly or wrongly, that the pandemic represented a blip? Now we're going in the right direction. Um, it's I, not wait, the general wait, wait, sentiment. On, Look on. at the Since, polls. Mm -hmm. Chabad, oh, right. Chabad is organized around a 13th century religious text. They want to remove themselves from modernity. Okay. And by the way, Chabad members are safe. These crimes happen They're, in certain zip right. codes they on certain blocks. They don't live in the Chabad community, and, where, and I and cite that to live. say these are religious conservatives who live who like live cheek by jowl with you know people of all different ethnicities and they are not experiencing fear right now again this is a perception issue jamie you know has said that there are other things that cue him into the idea that we're in their societal uh breakdown um among them you know graffiti homelessness and all those things signal crime or signal some kind of uneasy breakdown that we call crime to some people to these guys in what looks like a very dangerous neighborhood, honestly, to me, 
don't say they they aren't afraid of it. Who knows? Another guy also said he, he he was just traveling here that he had once had a subwoofer stolen out of his car a long time ago. He was still miffed about it. He actually admitted that in those days he had racist ideas of who might have stolen it, and he continued to be angry at black people. He never found out who stole it. Um, now visiting New York, he said he didn't, he wasn't afraid at all. He didn't even, uh, look, you know, worry about his wallet. Now, why am I bringing well, maybe this he up? Maybe he didn't go I'm, to Brownsville, which is the neighborhood right next to Crown Heights where these k- yeah, Chabad guys exactly, live, where I the assume, Chabad which guys is the most okay. murderous neighborhood in the city. But see how you're city. doing the comparison. So you're like, well, okay, he's Republican. He was scared of crime when he was, you know, heard earlier. He's visiting from rural Virginia. He's my brother-in-law. And still he uh, was unafraid in Brooklyn. So, y- you know, you can you can tear apart anecdotes all, all you want. But I'm just talking about perception. So I asked a friend of mine who is afraid of crime. Do you know what she's afraid of? She's afraid of being pushed off the subway platform because videos of people pushing people off the subway platform have been circulating. And she says she stands, you know, closer to the center of the subway platform, lest someone come and, and hit her that way. And apparently those kind of crimes are up. But, you know, when we're talking justification, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what numbers justify what. I mean, I wasn't afraid in the 90s when rates were really high. I wasn't afraid during the pandemic when rates skyrocketed, as you say. And I'm not afraid now when they're coming down. I am, however, afraid of lead poisoning. So there are a lot of there are other things and pedestrian deaths. Don't get me started. But you know, for for some reason, I I mean, I do think this is an impressionistic question. Are you worried about crime? The Gallup poll, no one specifies what kind of crime it is. And then these all the politicians are taking it and running with it to, in order to tee up, as we all know, their answer, which across the board is more policing. I, I just have to say I'm flummoxed. I'm a little lost at the melange of anecdotes or statistics. I just tried to look at things like murder, which is the worst of all crimes, and document that it is exploding. And I'll just say it's that it's down if in New York. Can we agree that it's it down, down in New York? It is down after Eric Adams was elected by single digits percent. It's up by 30 something percent overall. This is like saying global warming is down because last year average temperatures weren't as bad as two years ago. We're not allowed to talk about the 90s, right? But we are allowed. We can't. So we can't even comment on it going down over a year as opposed to saying. We don't know that it's gone down. We just the official FBI statistics for the full year of 2021 had it going up by 4%. So Mike, you live in New York. You live deeper yeah. in in Bro- into Brooklyn than I do. Are you afraid? Yeah, well, I don't know if I'm afraid. I will say this. If anecdotes matter, when I moved to my neighborhood in 2019 and my kids were younger, my youngest was 10, mm-hmm. we sent him to the store at nine o'clock. And two nights ago, he wanted some strawberry ice cream. And I said, let me come with you because there's a shooting mm-hmm. every third night. Now, mm-hmm. that's an anecdote. And I don't need the anecdotes. I just know about the bodies. I just know about about the empirical evidence. And the last thing I want to say is if there's any politician who would try to sometimes sometimes there are issues where, look, we all know a politician has to say something and a politician can't just level with the people and say, well, you really want inflation to go down? Unemployment's going to have to go up. You can't say that. But if a politician were to say, you know, crime's not that bad, he or she would correctly be excoriated and should lose his job. Yeah, I mean, I just I think this is an interesting one because I'm, you know, I'm not like when when people on the left talk about things they're afraid of. Let's say Asian hate, 
right? Yeah. They're like, they're just like, this is really, really dangerous. It, the right is like never fails to come around, maybe not with Asian hate, but with racism, with police violence and say, what? It's so much better than it ever was. You're blowing this out of proportion. Here's the most conservative numbers you've ever seen that show you that like, you know, forget people being shot at, forget people who have a jackknife in their, in their pocket being shot dead, but that this many unarmed men and it's so tiny. So why are they afraid? They're just delusional. Racism's over. This is one of those cases where I, I just want to get to the point where fear is, in, in, is, is, is instantiated in us and then uh, exaggerated in the media. And why we would be more afraid this year than last year of violent crime, I'm not sure. It's an election know. year. I think that plays a huge part of it is that we're talking about it. Uh, because we talk about issues more. People are going to exploit political issues more mm-hmm. in the months and weeks running up to an election. And yeah. this is a real liability for the Democratic Party. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there when it comes to this talk of actual violence. But in a moment, we will talk about, oh, the sight of so much rhetorical violence, if you will. Twitter, stay with us. We're back with Not Even Mad, and let's listen to our new chief twit. That's his term, not mine, Elon Musk. I I do think that uh, uh, it was not correct to ban Donald Trump. I think that was was a mistake um, because it, uh, it alienated a large part of the country and did not ultimately result in Donald Trump not having a voice. He is now going to be on Truth Social um, as will uh, a large part of the sort of the, the right in the in the United States. Um, and so I think this could end up being frankly worse than having a sing- you know, a single forum where everyone can debate. Um, so um, I, I guess the answer is that I, I, I would reverse the PERMA ban. I'll say I'm not I don't own Twitter yet. So this is not like a thing that will definitely happen, because what if I don't own Twitter? Last week, Elon Musk finally completed his on-again, off-again attempt to purchase Twitter, shelling out $44 billion for the social media site, stating that Twitter should serve as a common digital town square where a wide range of beliefs can be debated in a healthy manner. The world's richest man also sought to assuage critics who fear that the site will become a cesspool of divisive and hateful content under his control. Twitter, he tweeted, cannot become a free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences. On the contrary, it must be warm and welcoming to all. Musk is going to need to do a lot more to convince the many blue check marks who cer- ceremoniously announced that they would leave the site if he took the reins. Many have cited his promise earlier this year to restore the account of former President Donald Trump, which was suspended indefinitely in the wake of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol because of his incendiary tweets. Among the great and the good who have threatened to leave our feeds are professional wrestler Mick Foley, Mia Farrow, Stephen King, and Shonda Rhimes. Others, like Rob Reiner and George Takei, have summoned the spirit of Winston Churchill, bravely declaring that they will remain on Twitter and fight the MAGA teabaggers in the threads, fight them in the DMs, <laughs> fight them wherever the nasty tweets may surface and never surrender. Virginia, as the co-host with by far the most Twitter followers, what do you think about our new Twitter king? And just as importantly, 
Will you stay and join the fight? <laughs> we'll be strong and join with me in the DMs. Um, I, I, uh, I, One uh, day more. God. All right. For some reason, like, this is probably totally lunatic that I'm going to quote this, but what comes to mind is a passage from Lolita where um, Hubbard Humbert is listening to Lolita cry in her room um, next to him. And he says, but, and I would hear her. It was the first evidence that Lolita is not having a good time with him. I would hear her crying every night, every night, for you see, she had nowhere else to go. So who's the Lolita here? Well, uh, I, you know, Twitter, I, I, I've said to you guys before off the mic, I think is, um, has been a very interesting place to spend time to exchange views with people I never would have met otherwise, including at times Stephen King. Um, and, uh, uh, but my commitment is, and this is my answer to, will you join the fight? My, uh, idea is stay with me here to dither. What I've realized is if I dither, if I make a plan to dither, I almost always follow through on my plan. So I feel very, you know, like I keep my promises to myself. Um, I, uh, I don't really know. I don't really know exactly where to go. People have suggested other places and where to go for what, right? Where to go to have interesting conversations about history and politics. Um, as one uh, Yale law professor put it, that sounds very overly earnest, but that's what I'm typically in it for. And uh, and I like the diversity of voices and views that I hear there. I have been trolled there and live to tell about it so that it doesn't bother me in that way. And uh, Musk instantly trolled uh, Paul Pelosi by way of Hillary Clinton by saying that Paul Pelosi hadn't been attacked in an act of political violence and um, criminal assault uh, with a hammer, but th this was some kind of sex act gone wrong. I mean, that is really QAnon stuff. And it just, it, it, it just, you know, when the head of the company is like wrecking, polluting things like that, you know, why, who wants to hang around? We'll say the last thing is Stephen King's point, and he hasn't yet said he'll leave. But Stephen King's point that you know everyone's going to have to 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 pay to stay, and especially pay to stay with some kind of verification. Um, and he said, you know, you should be paying me. Well, that's been the truth of Twitter all along. Like a lot of writers, including Stephen King, who get paid, you know, <laughs> every word in gold, um, gives away these witticisms. J.K. Rowling, you know, whoever else. That that's been one of the weirdest things about the site is. It's this free-flowing conversation with people sort of up and down the food chain that I think is really interesting. Anyway, Stephen King says, you should pay me. I'm going to be gone like Enron rather than, you know, pay to stay here. And that much makes sense. Yeah. To me, the thing about Twitter is I give it a four. I think it used to be a six, but now it's a four. <laughs> I don't really like it that much. Not for the reasons that most people don't like it. I do worry about the potential for propagandizing. And it looks like Bolsonaro might accept the election results. But if he doesn't, Twitter's <laughs> certainly going to be a means for him to deny it. But it's just not that fun. It doesn't really, it's not useful to me. The other day, as if you listen to the gist, I was talking about this. I was looking up Fetterman to see what interesting people were saying about Fetterman, and they might have been saying interesting things, but no one I saw, no one who has surfaced for me on Twitter, they were just, it was all this weird debate between ableism versus ha ha ha, what, a, what an idiot. And uh, I don't think Twitter's bad because it brings out, necessarily because it brings out the worst of our id. I just don't think it's good. And 
Elon Musk, who say what you want about Elon Musk, the guy obviously loves Twitter. And when someone <laughs> takes over a property and he has a love for that property, usually there is at least the potential for good things to happen. Right. When Steve Cohen bought the Mets, he made the Mets better. He also had a lot of money to spend on the Mets and he didn't overpay by tens of billions of dollars. Really, seriously, uh, Elon Musk may have overpaid by a half a Zuckerberg, given that Zuckerberg's <laughs> worth only about 40 billion these days. But I'll ask you guys, do you like Twitter? What would you give it on a scale of one to 10? And how's that affecting your perception of if Elon's going to ruin it or not? I mean, I used to have a pretty serious Twitter addiction. And I've weaned myself off it. And I spend very little time on the platform. Uh, it's improved my health, but it's also improved, I think, my ability to discern what's going on in the world. I think Twitter has a highly distortive effect on our perception of political reality. And I think uh, far too many journalists spend far too much time on Twitter. They think that what they see on Twitter, and let's be honest, who's using Twitter? Who are the most active users? These are political hobbyists. These are people who are obsessed with politics. They're not representative of the country. I mean, to go back to our earlier conversation, you know, why did defund the police and these kind of radical left ideas about crime and policing um, become so widespread so fast across American institutions in the summer of 2020? I think it was because of Twitter to a large extent. I think these ideas um, get inserted into kind of the, the mainstream media bloodstream um, Twitter has a kind of mobbing effect. They, these, these ideas can be amplified and you can, if you spend all your day on Twitter, which is what a lot of people in our sense-making institutions do, they're misled about what popular opinion is. Um, and we saw, you know, we've seen political candidates who are really popular on Twitter, uh, don't do, haven't always fared so well mm -hmm. in the, in the general electorate. I'm not referring to Donald Trump, obviously, who's, who's clearly was extremely popular on Twitter and, unfortunately became president and might become president again. But I'm thinking of candidates like Elizabeth Warren, for instance, um, or, or others. And so I think, uh, I, think, I think Twitter has been really harmful for the, for the profession of journalism. And, you know, maybe things could be better. Maybe, maybe Elon Musk has the, has the secret sauce. So I'm, I'm watching uh, with, with, with some interest. Jamie, I always put Elon Musk in a category of, I understand the guy. Um, I don't always like what he says. Uh, I think that he cultivates a persona that is uh, uh, at least a bit off-putting to me. But that tweet, that Hillary Clinton response, mm -hmm. to me, it was in another category. And not just because for the first time ever, he was inside the tent urinating within, mm -hmm. right? Not mm -hmm. just pissing from the outside. I was appalled and maybe someone will hear this and say, well, Mike, that's on you. You should have known he showed us who he was. But I was shocked that he would tweet something like that. And it got me more worried than any of the other discourse about this. Yeah, I got it. I, I have to agree with you. And I was I was plenty worried in advance. Um, I do think that it is, you know, my work is on tech and the, you know, the things I've done since, since 2007, um, since Twitter launched to try to make my Twitter feed good, um, is, uh, you know, it's like, um, recently, uh, someone was saying in, in, in the verge, it's like moderation is the only, only intellectual property Twitter has its moderators who make the thing interesting and safe. And you're arguing uh, safe. I, I mean, from like, you know, totally 
egregious hate and disinformation. Mm-hmm. What you're saying about your the you know the Fetterman your Fetterman search not turning up anything very interesting, you know, suggests that something's wrong in the moderation. I mean, I could help you adjust your settings if you wanted it to be you wanted to get better res- re- returns, but you know who has the time? So um, anyone getting off it or who got off it a long time ago, all hail, Jamie. You're a, you've self-defined as a f- free speech absolutist. What about allowing some of these characters back? There's Trump, but do you think Twitter is better or worse without, say, a Milo Yiannopoulos on it? You know, there's this thing called the block button, and I've never understood <laughs> why people complain so much about being harassed on Twitter. I've been harassed on Twitter. I was the target of, during 2016, I was the target of Russian bots and right-wing nutcases. They were posting photo, you know, doctored photos of me. Uh, in an in an Auschwitz gas chamber with a Donald Trump wearing an SS uniform, you know, uh, gassing me to death. I kind of thought it was funny, um, but I've been the target of uh, vicious attacks and hatred. Block people if you don't like them. No one's forcing you to listen to it. So uh, yeah, I mean that's that's just my attitude. I'm sorry. And what about targeted disinformation campaigns, especially in you know? periods like uh, between the opening and the closing of the polls, or this was Facebook, not Twitter, you know, the Tigray region of Ethiopia, where essentially social media was used to inspire uh, something of a genocide. That was a lot of Facebook, but but it surely happens on Twitter too. I mean, Twitter just is so much less efficient in its data gouging that, uh, you know, they can swarm bots on someone, but they don't do as well. Uh, yeah, with, uh, I mean, I, th- I think yeah. I think transparency is the best solution to that sort of thing. So if there are government-sponsored accounts, mm. then they should be identified as such. And I believe Twitter and Facebook have introduced such policies. Mm. So I don't believe that these accounts should be taken down. I think the more information we have, the better. I want to see what the Russian government messaging is, because that gives me more information about how they're thinking, how they're trying to influence uh, Western audiences. Uh, I think we learn more by by seeing more. So I'm I'm against taking down those accounts. But again, this all goes to my this all goes to my belief that uh, you know personally I don't find much use in it. Uh, I think one should moderate the time they spend on it if they want to have a uh, an accurate picture of the world. You know, I I I'm going to say I feel like making a confession here. I have not said this uh, to, like even really to myself, but having long rejected the idea that you that anything like addiction is a good word to describe one's relationship with language which is basically what twitter is made of you know i didn't uh, being addicted to novels which i've been accused of at other times um being addicted to texting i mean this is reading and writing and i just think we should move away from kind of calling everything alcoholism or whatever well that i don't said, think that's what the addiction no, no, no. Stri- i don't i wouldn't compare i wouldn't i would not compare your addiction to novels which i think is a a wonderful passion to have. Mm-hmm. I would not compare that to the use of Twitter. And I don't think that's, it's not, it's well, not writing. I, I, all right. I, mean, this is, all, I, mean, this is, I will refer people, you to my, my book, Magic and no, Loss, to talk about the fears that people have had around all kinds of reading, including news, newspapers. People who are addicted to, to rage. People, no, no, no. But I'm talking addic- about language. I'm talking about language. But it, so people have in the past, different forms, been addicted to newspapers, addicted to novels. Before that, the 19th century was very worried about women. And then, of course, people worrying about addicted to Twitter. But why this is a confession, why this is a confession and why I end up agreeing with you is that the last few days I deleted the app. I put up 
things that I had to promote and nothing more. I didn't get involved in anything. And, um, and I, I've done this a few times before when I've been, uh, you know, part of a trolling campaign and, you know, freaking nature, man, it's good social media. You know, I, I was like, and I, the, the, what I'm waiting for is for me to stop thinking in tweets because while it's, I don't find it's addictive. I do absolutely believe the media is the message. And I've come to believe some distorted things about life and politics by hanging around in a place just about priorities. For instance, when I read this light of human consciousness thing about Elon Musk, I could hardly sleep thinking, oh, he's just trying to wipe us all out by letting us distract ourselves to death so that he can move to Mars with Overmen. I mean, that's the kind of thing that got in my head. And walking in the park the other day, I just thought, nobody here is worrying about Elon Musk wiping us all out to go to Mars. Um, and, uh, and I think that was, I think I had that revelation because I wasn't on Twitter. So that was a long way to say it, but I think for whatever reason, taking a break from Twitter has been good for me also. Well, not thinking in tweets is something we can all endorse. <laughs> Hashtag word to the wise. And we ask you not to dither, but if you do, please do it deliberately over this next break. And we will come back and give you the segment that is sure to capture America's hearts. Cancel court. And we are back with Not Even Mad. Oyves, oyves, cancel court is in session. Justices Kerchik, Heffernan, and Pesca presiding. All those who have been canceled might have been canceled or stand for the proposition that no one's ever canceled, because it's all a myth, are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Today's litigant is James Bennett. Two and a half years ago, the New York Times ran an op-ed by Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton arguing that federal troops could be deployed against rioters. Here's Cotton himself describing the reaction to that piece. The New York Times editorial page editor and owner defended it in public statements, but then they totally surrendered to a woke child mob from their own newsroom that apparently gets triggered if they're presented with any opinion contrary to their own. Word choice designed to excite the humors of a Fox audience, which indeed was who Cotton was speaking to there. But it is true that the New York Times, after a short period of support, did come to agree with protesters within the paper's ranks, amending the op-ed with a note saying essentially mistakes were made and eventually pushing op-ed page editor James Bennett out. Bennett did his first on-the-record interview since leaving the Times. He said publisher Arthur Sulzberger Jr. lit him on fire and threw him in the dumpster. Eric Wemple, columnist in the Washington Post, reflected on his own coverage and concluded all this time later that of course Bennett was unfairly ousted and admitted that he Wemple was too much of a coward to say so at the time. Are we making a similar admission now? Are you ready to do so if indeed we thought the ousting was justified? And if so, is this a case of cancellation? Justice Heffernan, what say you? I think it was a case of cancellation and justified cancellation. I'm going to try to make this point concisely, not quite a tweet, but here goes. When I first read the piece, I one paragraph stood out to me. It's the second one. And it, it, it's a paragraph that Cotton, and I'm this is the piece by Tom Cotton that Bennett oversaw, uh, it, Cotton is trying to make the point that 
American cities have been plunged into anarchy because of looters and feckless elite Democrats um, and that the military should be called in because of that. Bands of looters, he starts out, roved the streets, smashing and emptying hundreds of businesses. Some even drove exotic cars. The riots were carnivals for the thrill-seeking rich, as well as other criminal elements. What stood out to me was drove exotic cars. Wow, right? Are there, was it like Lamborghinis all over in, in, in Midtown? Like, I wanted to see that. So I went online to try to find it. I didn't see any of it. So then I finally realized that he had linked drove exotic cars. It's still linked in the piece, underscore drove exotic cars. I clicked through to it and discovered that he was using as his sole source a tweet. That tweet is by someone named Rachel Olding, a journalist at the Daily Beast. She was live tweeting from Midtown, and what she said was, it was like Mario Kart on the streets too. Dozens of $200,000 Mercedes racing each other, nearly hitting people, only stopping to load up with bags of stolen stuff and speed on to the next spot. I don't know if you need me to walk you through this, but leaving aside that Cotton turned luxury Mercedes cars into exotic cars, if I were, uh, you know, fact-checking at the New Yorker or if I had written that in the New York Times myself, all the car freaks would have written in and said, this is a luxury car, not an exotic car, but go ahead. The second half of that sentence is where he makes, he nails his point, and it's the point he's been making all along. The riots were carnivals for the thrill-seeking rich as well as other criminal elements. He is obsessed with this being the thrill-seeking rich. It can't be poor black kids because that gets him in in trouble. It has to be the thrill-seeking rich. So his argument doesn't hold up. I'm only leaning on two sentences that as a fact checker at The New Yorker, I would have been fired for letting this through. I would have been fired for letting it through. Are you being, this is so pedantic. What? (laughs) This is pedantic. Okay, I've written for the Times for 20 years. When I so James Bennett, should have been fired. Child- James, Bennett should, James Bennett should have been fired because of these two errors, what you claim are errors. These two errors justified the firing of the editorial page editor? No, what are you talking about? This is not errors like Destiny's Child broke up the wrong year because, which is a, an innocent error. This is the team working on this. We're trying to make the facts. I got to hand it to you. This is really creative because, you know, this is two years since, since this firing happened. And the reason why he was fired, we all know. It had nothing to do with these two things that you just brought up. It had to do with an article uh, claiming bringing in the army and that people thought that black lives were in danger, that journalists' lives were in danger because of this article. That was the reason why he was fired. I have to hand it to you, Virginia. You found two what you claim to be errors. I've never heard of these before. I haven't heard anyone even bring these up before until today. It's a very creative way to to, to retroactively justify. Everyone (laughs) agreed right after that the piece was a shit show and that's why he should have been fired. Now, wait a second. Now (laughs) The publisher of the Times didn't agree until he was leaned on by several staffers writing, running this puts black at New York Times staff in danger that the op-ed was retracted and Bennett was uh, essentially pushed out. But sorry, I I think interrupted everyone. Go ahead, Virginia. I, I mean, I think that it should definitely not have been retracted on, or it wasn't retracted because it's it was. Still it was amended with a lengthy note that didn't include anything about BMWs or Mercedes. But it was he- heavily amended with an election note. The- and also didn't collect and correct any errors. So that apologia that Bennett thinks was like so craven actually missed the whole point that there were problems with the piece. And the reason that, that, that 
you know, I could go on and on. One of the things is he says in it that de Blasio is standing by. He had de Blasio, by the time he published it, two days before he published it, had doubled the police on the ground from 4,000 to 8,000. There were, there were, uh, he had arrested 700 people. He was not standing by. 23 states had already called in the National Guard. So it looked like the problem was that some that somebody whined about it. And maybe that's what got them to take a closer look at it. But what becomes clear when you look at this, when you look at like he's linking to a tweet, an unverified tweet to make one of the major claims of his piece, even if somehow what she said in the tweet was borne out, you can't link to a tweet. I mean, I, we'd get killed. We would never do that. Right. I think we can agree that I would not say here are the crime stats. Well, I don't think we know what the, I don't think tweet. we know the full details of the fact check. He might have he might have provided other evidence to the fact checker. Um, well, uh, so we don't. Yeah. Know. But that's I also the, don't, that's I also the don't link think he gave this, the reader. Hold on, hold on, and come, he's got other stuff wrong, too. But the, I mean, my my that argument might not have been him. That might have been an editorial assistant who put that link in there. We don't know that. And this is, these are not, these are pedantic, these are not, these were not what the crux of the piece was about. No, no, no. The Look, crux of the piece was have, about is, should or should not the army have been sent in to quell the riots? That was a view that was supported by an overwhelming majority of the American people at the time, including large numbers of African Americans. Uh, a small, not so small, um, uh, a, a significant number of employees at the New York Times um, who don't believe really in the old standards of journalism and hearing all sides. Uh, they have a political agenda. They wanted this killed, and they were waging a struggle within the paper, and this was a way for them to gain control. That's what this is about. That's what it has always been about. It's not about whether or not Mercedes are exotic or luxury cars. Come on. Okay. Obviously, that's not what I was saying. I was saying his link to the idea that there are exotic cars there points to a tweet that doesn't justify what he said. There is no photographic evidence. There are no corroborating witnesses for that. And he stakes a whole lot. If I am ever charged with a crime, I want you as my defense lawyer. I want you as my if defense lawyer. If you're going to get into the let me finish <laughs> like department, let me finish. If, if Bennett's, what happened is Bennett was eager to publish this incendiary, exciting piece and show he was giving a voice to the far right as he always does. Tom Cotton. It's not the far Tom right. Cotton, it's not the far right. No, I know. You say other people agreed with it. Uh, we can talk about that study separately. A majority of the American people agreed you with the You said an overwhelming majority. It was certainly not an overwhelming majority. 69%, I believe, was the number, I if I'm not that mistaken. I think that is for the National Guard. We can look at it later. Tom Cotton, I who later yes. did not want an investigation 58%. of the actual insurrectionists on January 6th. So that's very exciting to put him in there. He's like a Harvard, Harvard person, like all people who went to Harvard okay, somehow well, hate the elites. No, January 6th saying, was six months later. Okay. Bennett was very eager to publish Tom Cotton because he's exciting and far right. That because he was so excited to publish this piece, he his underlings ended up trying to make the facts fit the argument. We've all been there. We've all worked on a piece and said, God, I wish this inconvenient fact were not the way that it, I wanted it. I wish there had been exotic cars at this thing because that would have helped me with my Antifa radical chic argument. But there weren't. So somebody dug up one tweet that said this thing. So when the facts didn't fit his, fit his argument, they buffed over it because Bennett was determined to give him a voice. And for that, he should be fired. Bennett was determined to give him a voice because his remit as editorial page editor, he was hired to air all sides of all stories, including ones that are odious to readers of the New York Times. With factors. With factors. If an argument can be made in the well of a Senate, then it can be made on the pages of the New York Times. It doesn't mean it should be made, and it doesn't mean it's a correct argument. I think the nature of the argument, I think the actual 
execution of the argument. I think a lot of the phrases that you cited were just really poorly done. But Bennett's job was to put forward even arguments that staffers of the New York Times would disagree with and disagreed they did. And then the job of the people who hired him was to say, that's what we hired Bennett to do. You may not like it, but this is the project we want to be engaged in. Hearing arguments that you don't even agree with. Sort of like when we as a paper published Hitler and the deputy chairman of the Taliban, et cetera, et cetera. But it was this precise tweet and this precise argument argument, which we understand was crafted to get around workplace rules. The union advised that if they framed it as a potential harm, that people who are at the Times wouldn't be retaliated against. But the argument that running this piece puts black New York Times staffers in danger, not because of exotic cars, not because of if Monday was the worst of the riots or Sunday was the worst of the riots or when de Blasio stood by, but the basic crux of the piece, the calling out the National Guard to quell rioters. If that put black people in danger, that was too much for the New York Times to stand up to. So they caved. And that's why Eric Wemple said, I was too much of a coward to say so at the time. It was a cowardly act, I think. And it was a cancellation. How many times have you seen people take umbrage at an article, people go back to the article, they kick the tires and they say, it's sound and we st- we got to stand by it. It's sound. This was an unsound piece. I'm looking at it right now. All right. Exotic cars you think is a minor thing, Jamie. I get that. Uh, you know, the fact that he links to a tweet you think is perfectly fine because maybe there was other evidence, even though it's unsighted, even though I can't find any. All right. But from there, he goes like off on this, he's not even talking about, for lots of the piece, he's not even talking about um, rolling in troops and tanks. Some elites have excused this orgy of violence in the spirit of radical chic. He loves this idea that it's some elites and some Democrats who sit idly by while these things happen because they're so chic. Has anyone ever proven that there was any world of like Upper West Side people with fancy cars who came down and looted. No. And they didn't do it in the spirit of any kind of radical shit. And that is central to his uh, argument. There, there, there were two lawyers, I believe one of them went to Princeton undergraduate, uh, who were charged with throwing Molotov cocktails and overturning a police car. Uh, these were two very well expensively educated people. Well, I think they just, I think they just firebombed it, didn't overturn it. But to me, those are just okay. totally should have cited some examples of this, like these, uh, you know, luxury cars and this radical chic thing, which he says is a general case. Elites, uh, you know, supporting you know what, Virginia, the riots. Cotton, this just didn't happen. Cotton was describing, and I would say inaccurately for the most part, and guessing at the motivations of the rioters. Just as you were assessing the motivations of James Bennett in loving to put forward far-right arguments. I think that there was some rioter, some protester who probably was inspired by something that we could call radical chic, but it really doesn't matter because the crux of the argument is we should call in the troops ahead headline that describes what Cotton was calling for, for that was further decried by the editor's note that it shouldn't have been the headline. It was the argument. The argument itself was odious to people who worked at the Times. They crafted into a you are going to harm us on the basis of race mm-hmm. argument. And that created the cave. It wasn't because of the details. If we put every single op-ed in the New York Times through the ringer of 
Do they get things right? There are many, many that no one at the Times would disagree with that fell in the same way that the cotton op-ed does. It's just that he was expressing so odious opinion that staffers felt it could not stand. And I'm aggrieved to say they wound up being right. I think when you write a piece as, as um, I mean, let's just say it's striking a, you know, a very, uh, very hard and potentially incendiary position on something, you have to be extra careful on the facts. I mean, we know that libel cases, if you make a mistake about the color of someone's hair, a libel case can be predicated on an error of fact in another way. And these were facts on which the whole argument pivoted and they were wrong. And the Times was wrong not to call out the errors and correct the errors, but they were right to fire James Bennett. Okay. I take that point. And now let us make our judgments. Justice Kerchick, what say you? Was James Bennett canceled? Was it a fair cancellation? He was absolutely canceled. And I think that this will actually go down as a seminal moment in American journalism history, that in 20 years, we will look back on this firing as uh, a major a major negative moment that changed journalism for the worse in this country. Justice Heffernan, what say you? I think he was canceled. He lost his job and I think he it was right to be, he was right to be canceled and the New York Times is better for it. And I say he was canceled and I want to credit your points Virginia, not the exotic cars one, but a lot of the other ones. You didn't change my mind, but you certainly affected my judgment when I say unfair cancellation. This court so decrees <laughs> all judgments of cancel court are binding precedent until which time of reconsideration or revelation of bad takes, bad tweets are punching down. On this date, November 2nd, Anno Domini 2022, it is so ordered. <laughs> and now is the section of the show where we discuss things that are grinding our gears or, you know, just getting our goats. We call them the goat grinders. Jamie Kerchick, do you have a goat grinder for us? Oh, Mike, you bet I do. And this was alluded to earlier. But as someone who has just written a book about the history of gay Washington, available in all fine bookstores, I am always interested in the intersection of homosexuality and politics. And this latest QAnon or far-right claim that Paul Pelosi was not attacked uh, by a man he didn't know, but rather by a gay prostitute I have to say, is really getting my goat. And I'll also just say, having seen a photo of Mr. DePape, I find it very hard to believe that he was making a living selling himself for sex. Let's just leave it at that. Okay, that's the goat. <laughs> Virginia, I didn't, th- I didn't think it would end there, but okay. Exactly. Virginia Heffernan, do you have a goat grinder? I am a bust at Halloween. That's what I, I would grind my goat. I don't know how everybody got so good at makeup and creative ideas. I every year drag out my same clown costume and wander and put some lipstick on my cheeks and wander around as I pass people in increasingly elaborate clothes dressed like Marie Antoinette. So I guess I think I wish the bar hadn't been set so high, at least in New York City. And I also my own inability grinds my own goat. My goat grinder is thus. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that earbuds stay there on their own. I got a pair of Bose earbuds. Wonderful, wonderful sound. Great Father's Day gift. As long as I keep my head as still as statuary. So 
What they do is say, you know, all ears are different. What we're going to do is we're going to give you different rubbery earbud covers. And this way, your particular ear hole can be suited to the earbud so that it stays in there just so long as you never move your head an inch or ever unhinge your jaw. I lost these earbuds jogging. I lost them walking. I lost them cooking. I lost them eventually on a plane, which gave me the opportunity to say, all right, let me now buy the earbuds that really stay there. I did my research. I read the reviews, but it's like reading a review of which three card Monty dealer is easiest to beat. It's a sucker's game. Speaking of beats, I got beats by Dre and beat me down. They did. I lost them on the subway. I lost them in a frying pan. I lost them under a planter on the street that was bolted there. So that's me on my hands and knees screaming. The ear is not a sphincter. It does not grasp what you put inside. Earbuds are a those silicon covers were just designed to give us the illusion of choice to put the problem back on us. Uh, or I guess my ears are just incompatible with progress. What I'm saying is F you earbuds. I would scream, but you can't hear me as you now lay on the bottom of a bowl of rice trying to, <laughs> trying to get the water out of you having been plopped into a sink. I want to thank you for putting that in my ear holes. That's right. It's all about eyeballs and ear holes. And that is it for Not Even Mad. Not Even Mad is a peach fish project. Please drop a line to the peach fish crew at notevenmad at peachfishprojects.com. Reaction feedback, fun wintertime acorn squash recipes. Many of you have subscribed and rated the show. Many have done neither of those. Please do both. And look for us with the hashtag NotEvenMad on Twitter. NotEvenMad is produced by Joel Patterson. Our theme songs by Max Kerman, produced by Derek Hoffman. The website's MikePesca.com slash NotEvenMad. Virginia Heffernan's most recent piece in the LA Times is headlined to tweet or not to tweet. Jamie Kerchick discussed Secret City last week with Dan Savage on the Savage Lovecast. And on the Gist tomorrow, you'll hear this. You're competing against your mimics, um, of, of which Marjorie Taylor Greene now has several in Georgia and beyond. And you're no longer, you know, the distinctive voice, but just one of several. That's Robert Draper, author of Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Until next time, we're not saying we're right. We're definitely not saying you're right, but we are not even mad. 